Well, we enter now into the season of Lent. This is a season that leads up to Easter, and it has been marked by the church for centuries as a period of time of reflection, of prayer, of fasting. Ironically, we're having a potluck right afterwards. I probably should have thought that through. And a time of repentance. It is time that the church has traditionally foregone the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And so for the next few weeks, that will be something that will be missing from our service as we observe that aspect of fasting. But part of that fasting is the element of, of repentance. And so uh, I hope that you do this every week, but I'm asking especially now as we go into this time that you would allow the Lord to speak to your heart. And if there's anything in particular that he's talking to you about today, would you be obedient to it? Could we agree to that today? Well, here uh, we enter into, we are looking at a passage that has always made me somewhat uncomfortable because it shows a day in the life of Jesus that seems to be rather out of character for him. But you know, you can tell a lot about what is important to a person by seeing what it is that sets them off. The things that that, that individual considers to be fighting words. My son Ian, for example, is one of the most tender-hearted, sweetest young men that you will ever find. But the moment he suspects that anyone is mistreating an animal, that sweet, gentle young man turns into the Incredible Hulk. And it doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to be able to figure out that Ian really loves animals. And so it should be no surprise that he is preparing to be a veterinarian because that is a passion for him, that animals be taken care of. Well, you can tell what is important to a person when you see what it is that really makes them angry. And here we see an incident in the life of Jesus where he gets angry. He gets beyond angry. He does something there that we just are not accustomed to seeing with Jesus. And this is particularly interesting when you consider all the opportunities, all the things that Jesus saw and encountered and went through where we would have quickly cut him some slack if he had overturned some tables and chased people away. So why here? Why on this particular day does Jesus get so upset? What did he see or hear that for him was fighting words? Well, we need to remember that this took place at the temple. It took place in an area of the temple known as the Court of the Gentiles. And you will remember that the temple was built by Solomon using plans that God had given to King David. That temple was designed to be the center of religious worship. It was to be the place where, where the Lord God was worshipped, not just in Jerusalem, but throughout the entire world. It was built in such a way where every part of the temple had a specific purpose. There was, of course, the wall around the entire place. But then once you got into the wall, that first area you would come into was the court of the Gentiles. That's where Jesus is on this day in our passage that we read together. That court of the Gentiles was designed to be the place where anybody who had an interest in knowing and worshiping God was welcome to come. It was the discipleship place for the temple. People came there and that's where they were basically introduced into the faith. They were taught about what it means to worship God. They were taught about what it meant to be a follower of God. But then the further that you went into the temple, the more exclusive it became. 
There was a point at which you could enter only if you were a Jew. There was another point at which you could only enter if you were a Jewish male. Another point where you could enter only if you were a member of the priestly tribe of Levi, and so on and so on until you got to the innermost portion, the Holy of Holies, and that could be entered only by the high priest and then only one day out of the year for the purpose of offering atonement. Now that's the way it was designed. And since it was the focus of worship, so much of the worship was centered around the sacrificial system. Now we think about sacrifice and usually it, can, it carries with it a connotation of, of being somewhat depressing and painful to sacrifice something. But you know, most of the sacrifices that were dictated by, uh, by the law at that time were not, were not a hardship. Uh, there, were, there were a few sacrifices that were truly sacrifices. You gave something up and you never got anything back. There were some sacrifices that were marked with a time of, of mourning and it was supposed to be a, a, a time of reflection and, and distress. But for the most part, the sacrifices that were brought into the temple a portion of them of the sacrifice was kept in order to support the church staff, basically. The rest was given back to the individual who was bringing it, blessed by God, and then they were to have a celebration. They were to, whether they brought in an animal, whether they brought in grain, whatever it was, they were given it back and told, now go, enjoy it, call the family together. It was a wonderful time of community. Nazarenes did not invent the concept of the potluck. This is something that was going on way back to the date of the temple. And beyond that, it was just, it was a wonderful occasion for people to be connected. And as they were connected, they were connected around the fact that God had been good. God had blessed them, and now they were going to celebrate together the goodness of God. And since the worship was centered around these sacrifices, you know, it, it just required every single day some preparation for worship. I grew up on a farm. I know what's involved in raising animals. It's not something you can just tend to one day out of the year. Every single day, there is work that has to be put into caring for these animals. And there is work that has to be done every day in order to prepare for the harvest. Imagine if you were a parent in those days, the incredible teaching opportunities that you would have just centered around this concept of the sacrifice. Because as you were getting the whole family involved in caring for the animals, you would say to your children, now go, you need to go feed all the animals, but you see that one over there? Take especially good care of that one, because that one doesn't belong to us. That one is God's. That one, we, God has entrusted us with it. We are going to care for it. We're going to take very good care of it. But the day is coming when we are going to give it back to God. And when the whole family got involved in the harvest, you'd be able to say to the kids, now, go, take good care. Be sure you get the grain and everything put away. But this first fruits, the first bit of the harvest, take extra special good care of that because it doesn't belong to us. This is God's. We're going to care for it for a bit but the day's coming when we're going to give it back to him. Can you just imagine the value of that as a parent, being able to every single day have something that was centered around preparation for worship where you could be leading your whole family that way? Now, that's the way everything was intended, but over time, that practice started to change because, you see, caring for animals, that is a lot of work, particularly if you live in an urban area. 
I mean, if you're in Jerusalem, you can't necessarily have a, a flock of goats in your backyard. A flock of goats, is that what they're called? A herd of goats? Yes, we didn't raise goats. So there was a lot of extra preparation that had to take place. And over time, what it actually got to was where people said, you know, instead of raising these animals from birth, if, if we could go out and buy our animal for our sacrifice a little bit before it has to be offered, well, that would make sense, wouldn't it? I mean, the point is that we're offering the animal. We'll pay good money for it. We'll get good animals to sacrifice, but, but let's do that. And then over time, they said, you know, it's still a lot of work caring for these animals, even for a few days. Wouldn't it be nice if on the way to church, we could just get our animal? In fact, what would be really nice is if we could set up a market right within the church. That's what we should do. Let's, let's build this market. We can put it up against the wall. We'll call it a Walmart. And, and that way... That way, on the day of worship, I can just sleep in for an extra hour or so, and I don't have to worry about putting on work clothes or anything. I can just, I can, I can read the newspaper, I can come in, and on the day of worship, I'll just lay my money down, get my animal that I'm going to sacrifice. And somebody said, well, wait a minute, isn't that the court of the Gentiles? And they said, well, yeah, but it doesn't take up a lot of space, and it'll be helpful to them as well. So let's just do that. And then over time, another problem started to come up because that practice became more and more prevalent. And even when people came in from, uh, from all over, because the temple was not just for Jerusalem, it was for everybody who worshipped the Lord. So people were coming in from all nations. And they were bringing their money in from all nations. And they did not get good Wi-Fi there in the temple. Very difficult to figure out what the exchange rates are and everything for all these different merchants. And on top of that, people were bringing in all this money from all over the world. Some of that money had faces, like the face of Caesar on there. And that seemed an awful lot like a graven image. And so they said, you know, we really shouldn't be bringing in all this money from all over the place. Why don't we convert it? We'll come up with, with an acceptable form of currency for here within the temple. And people can just exchange it all. We'll have one form of currency. No matter where they're coming from, that's what they're going to use. And somebody said, that sounds like a great idea. Where are we going to put all these ATMs? And they said, why don't we put it here in the court of the Gentiles? After all, we don't have a lot of Gentiles who come here anymore anyway. It's just a lot of wasted space. Why don't we just put it there? And it will make it easier for all of us. And that's what they did. And over time... More and more Walmarts showed up, and more and more ATMs. And pretty soon, that court of the Gentiles was a marketplace. They'd totally forgotten about what the purpose of it was. They'd totally lost sight of why they even called it the court of the Gentiles. In fact, by the time of Jesus' day, we now know that they had put 16 stone warning signs throughout that area saying any Gentile who comes any further beyond this point is subject to execution. It would be like us putting a sign up right out here at the entrance. It says, warning, any Presbyterians who go any further will be promptly shot. Now, I've been at some unwelcoming churches in my day, but none of them have threatened to shoot me. But that's what they had done. 
they had set these up and the court of the Gentiles was a place where not even Gentiles were welcome. So Jesus walked into the court of the Gentiles. He overturned the tables, chased out the money changers, and he said, it is written, my father's house, it is written this, that, my, that this will be my father's house and you have made it into a den of robbers. In so saying, he was quoting two Old Testament passages. One was Jeremiah 7. In Jeremiah 7, God is speaking to the people of Jerusalem through the prophet, and he says, the temple, the temple, the temple, I don't ever want to hear you say that word again. You think that because you have the temple, you are exempt from the wrath of God. You think there's something special about you, that you have this temple and it will protect you, that you are no longer required to seek after me, to seek after my purposes. You think the temple will protect you? That's pure superstition. The temple, in fact, will stand in judgment against you if your heart is not right. You have made this into a den of robbers. That's Jeremiah 7. The other passage is Isaiah 56. And in Isaiah 56, God speaks through the prophet and he says, I don't ever want to hear again the foreigner who says, I have no place within the house of the Lord. I don't ever want to hear again the eunuch who says, I have no future, that I have no family. I don't want to hear anybody say that there's no place available for me for worship because my word is going to go out to the entire world and my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. That's what was on Jesus' mind. And the very first time he walked into the temple, he walked past 16 stone markers that said, God is wrong. The temple is not for all nations. The temple is just for us good Jews. And he walked into a court of the Gentiles that was designed to be leading people into a knowledge of the Lord. And it was so filled with with everything that had basically been designed to make it convenient for the people who were already there, that they had totally lost sight of why the temple even existed. Now, can you begin to get an idea of what he considered to be fighting words? Why it is that he got so upset? So Jesus came in and he starts overturning the tables. And the religious leaders came up and said, wait a minute, what do you think you're doing here? Who do you think you are? What do you, you have no right to come in here and rearrange the furniture. And he said, that's where you got it wrong. Because this is my father's house. It was built for me. It was built to point everyone to me. And the whole reason that I came was to reach an entire world. And somehow, folks, you have lost sight of it. That's what was going through his mind. Now, I got to tell you, I read that for years without making that connection. But once I made that connection, there were things that I started to see and I wondered, how did I ever miss it? You see, Jesus cleansed the temple twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end. The first time he does it is in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, he comes in, he overturns the tables, chases out the moneylenders, and then the... Right after that, he goes into John chapter 3, and in John 3, he has a conversation in the dead of night with a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is asking all these questions that he doesn't understand, and Jesus says, your problem, Nicodemus, 
is that you haven't been born again. And if you were born again, then you would be able to understand. You would be able to understand this central concept that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that through him everyone might be saved. He's saying, Nicodemus, you missed it. And how could you? You are the teacher in Israel. And somehow you've missed the fact that all of this is not about you. All of this is about all of them. That's John chapter 3. In John chapter 4, Jesus takes his disciples on a road trip. And they go to the place that no self-respecting Jew would ever go to, Samaria. And there, he engages in conversation with someone that no self-respecting Jew would ever talk to, a Samaritan. Not only a Samaritan, it's a Samaritan woman. And not only a Samaritan woman, this woman is, she's had more husbands than she's had shoes. Um, she is just a, a woman of a very poor moral character. And Jesus intentionally starts talking to her about her spiritual condition. And she says, you know, here's the thing. You, you Jews say that, that we need to worship God in the temple. We Samaritans think that we can worship him over in this mountain. What's it going to be? And Jesus says, neither one of you are right. The day is coming. In fact, the day is here. When everyone, everywhere, will worship God in spirit and in truth. So what was on his mind? What was on his mind was the fact that there's a whole world out there to be saved. A whole world, and that's the reason why he came. And his plan from day one was that his people would be instrumental in reaching the entire world. And somehow, somehow God's own people had lost sight of the fact that that was their mission. And they had made it all about themselves. Now you say, we wouldn't do that. But you know we have. I think the, one of the greatest days in church history was in the days of the Reformers. We owe an incredible debt to Martin Luther and the Reformers for preserving for us this doctrine of salvation through grace by faith alone. In so doing, they extended the invitation much further than what it had been before, and we owe an incredible debt to them. But, you know, one of the central doctrines of the Reformers was this concept of the elect, that God, God was only going to save a few, a few that he had chosen. And the interesting thing was, in the minds of the Reformers, the elect looked a lot like them. They were pretty much white Europeans. And so they narrowed it. They lost sight of the fact that God wants to save a world. Now we're Nazarenes. We come out of the tradition of John Wesley. So we can be a little proud of the fact that John Wesley said, I came to the table and I saw that the reformers had set the table and sent out the invitations, but I noticed the invitation list was too short. So Wesley extended both ends of the table laid out a whole bunch more placemats, 
sent out a broad invitation and said, whosoever will may come. Now that sounds a lot closer to what Jesus is talking about, doesn't it? But you know what I've noticed? Is that, well you see, it should be no surprise then that the reformers emphasize the sovereignty of God. We Wesleyans tend to emphasize the love of God, but what I've noticed is that this concept creeping into the church, that God loves everyone so much that he's not going to condemn anyone. Because he loves them so much, nobody's going to go to hell. And if nobody's going to go to hell, then nobody needs to be saved. And if nobody needs to be saved, well, then I have no responsibilities whatsoever. So I guess church is all about me, isn't it? And in so doing, we, we put this very subtle heresy even into this concept of what it means to be born again. Because we tell people, you must be born again. And you must. We tell them, you have to be born again because that's how you're going to be forgiven of your sins. That's the way you're going to be able to get into heaven. And that's true, no question about it whatsoever. But if I read Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 correctly, you know what the primary result of the new birth is? It's that your eyes are opened to the fact that God has a much bigger plan than just you. As Jesus said, Nicodemus, your problem is you can't see this because you have not yet been born again. And if you were, you'd realize that God so loved the world. And so I need to ask this morning, this first Sunday of Lent, this first Sunday of reflection and repentance, how are we doing, church? If Jesus were to show up here today, would he start rearranging the furniture? And if he did, you think we would challenge him about it? How are we doing? Because we don't have the whole temple concept anymore, but we still have this concept that there is only one plan. The plan is that his redemptive work be worked out through us, to our community, and to the entire world. How are we doing? And let me make it a little bit more personal. How are you doing? When did you start preparing for worship today? Now, we don't have this practice anymore where you have to spend every day taking care of an animal so that you can have something of every day prepared for worship. And we don't have this practice in place that we will accept only one form of currency here. I'm quite confident that if you bring in Spanish doubloons and put them in the offering plate, we'll figure out a way to convert them. But how much is in our culture that I don't really have to start preparing for worship until basically Sunday morning? That my first thought about what it means to worship is, is when I start getting ready in the morning. Because, after all, I have no responsibilities other than to come and get fed. And how much of our, of our culture, our expectation, tells people that there is one acceptable way to worship. You've got to know our language. You've got to know our practices. You've got to know where we are. How are we doing in recognizing the fact that our job is to be reaching the world around us? 
you're gonna, you get tired of me saying the same things week after week, I'm sure, but every single time I pray, I remind us to pray for the 2.8 million people in the Kansas City area. How under the sun will they know Jesus if they don't hear about him from you and me? When is the last time or have you ever thought about your preparation for worship in terms of who you can bring with you? When is the last time or have you ever shared about God's grace with somebody who doesn't yet know him? So how are we doing, church? In a pretty short time, you're going to be able to do something that I don't get to do. You get to cast a vote about who your next leader is going to be. If you're a member of this church, God has entrusted you with a very sacred responsibility. But do you realize that it doesn't matter what pastor you bring in? You can have the most energetic charismatic pastor that you could possibly find, he or she is going to be limited in the scope of the people he or she can reach. And we can't simply designate, delegate our responsibilities onto the paid staff. The responsibility rests with us. So how are we doing as individuals? How are we doing as a church? Something that I can say to every church, no matter how long I've been a part of it, or even if I've never been a part of it, is this. This is how you can tell. You are currently perfectly, perfectly equipped to get the results that you are currently getting. So, again, I'm not a member of this church, so I ask you, if you are happy with the results of what we are getting, then awesome. No need for any changes. But if you're not happy, and more to the point, if you think Jesus would not be happy, then continuing to do exactly what we're doing is not what will please him. How are we doing, church? I got to tell you, I have not looked forward to preaching this sermon. Um, I love it when the Lord gives me a nice, cheery, uplifting message where I know that everybody's gonna walk out just feeling three feet off of the ground. I felt this one coming for about six weeks and I've argued with the Lord a lot. I did not want to have to preach this because frankly, I like you guys. I, I do and I never want to be in the position of standing up and making it sound like I know, um, like I know better. But I gotta be obedient to what it is that the Lord says to me and this is one that he's been talking to me about for some time. And whenever he gives me a message, he first has to make it real in my life. So in preaching to you, I am also preaching to myself. And I enter into this period of Lent with you, a time of reflection, a time of confession, a time of repentance. And so we are not going to celebrate together the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as we typically would at this time. Instead, in the spirit of Lent, this is our time to confess. This is our time to reflect. This is our time to repent. And is God speaking to you? Is he saying, is he saying that uh, he would like to rearrange the furniture in your life? Is he saying he'd like to rearrange the furniture in this church? If so, will you be obedient to him? 
before our worship team comes up, I want to, to open this up for our time of response. And it may be that God would call you to come up and talk with him at the altar. It may be that you would want, in the spirit of community, to turn to a family member, a friend, somebody sitting next to you, and just be able to, to talk. Maybe to confess. Certainly to pray. Can we spend these last few moments together asking the Lord what he would have us do today? If he shows up in our midst, what would he have us change? first step in reflection or confession is to simply invite God to shine his light into your life, to point out anything that he finds unacceptable, anything that he would like to change. Would you ask God to shine his light in your heart right now?